So what I want to do is, uh, is I want to dive straight into today's talk, and then I'll, I'll unpack what the series is about that we're starting today, and then, um, as always, try and finish with Jesus. Father, let, let me just pray. Father, I just want to ask you, a prayer that's asked so often in the Bible, that I may know more of you. Not just what you do, not just the things that you get up to, but I may know more of you, because as I know more of you, I know more of myself and I know more of the possibilities, the potential of me individually, but us as a church. So ask, Lord God, may we know more of you in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I've got this uh, wonderful neighbor called Benny. He's, uh, he's an absolute delight. He's the kind of guy that you can go over to his house and just have a beer with him and just talk for a very long time, pretty much about anything in the world. And he's really a friendly guy and you engage with. Anyway, we were having this conversation the other day and he, uh, he just threw in a random question I wasn't expecting. He said, you know, I don't understand. How is it that you can be a Christian at a time like this? I was like, well, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, what do you mean, I asked. And he said, well, you know, I look at the world around me and all I see is evil. I don't understand. How can you believe that there is a God in this world, that he is at work? And how can you believe as a Christian when the world is like this, it's fallen apart? I was like, well, that's a good question. But for me, that's fundamentally the wrong question. The way I see it is that God is constantly at work. You know, if it wasn't for Christians in the world, then this world would be hell. But we have this incredible privilege, not just to, you know, as many people say, just kind of love others as you love yourself and be nice to one another. No, Jesus says so much more than that. He says, love as I have loved you. In other words, I have laid down my life for you. I've given everything for you. I have poured everything I have because I want to see that life flourish within you. That's how we're to love other people. And more so, you know, I was reading The Widow's Might, that story of a woman going up and putting her two coins into the offering basket. And that's all she had. And Jesus, from across the room, notices that and commends her for it. But do you notice he doesn't actually get up and go over to her and give her some food and take care of her? The implication is that his disciples are looking at what God notices. They're seeing the things that God sees. And it's the disciples that are supposed to go over and help to do something. I said, it's when we do that, that's when this world suddenly becomes a better place. When we can see God at work, that's why I'm a Christian. Anyway, he's kind of smiling throughout this whole thing. And then he just comments as I come to the end of my breath. And says, wow, I didn't go to church this morning, so I guess that was my sermon for the day. I don't think it was a compliment, to be honest, I'm not sure. But, But it did hit me at another level. This guy actually goes to church. More so, I prayed with his wife not too long ago for her wrist that had swollen up and there was in a lot of pain in, in our kind of courtyard. And, and I prayed for her and she got healed right then and there, an immediate thing. Just to see the swelling go down, it was incredible. And yet when you ask this guy and when you ask many people in our nation, what's Christianity about? Most people will go, oh, it's something to do with loving others, isn't it? And maybe going to heaven. I mean, I don't know about you, but it just seems so dramatically underselling what I think it should be and could be. I mean, look, for example, the mid-18th century. You've got France and you've got England, or the British Isles, in this place of absolute turmoil. They're at the, brink, they're at the start of this industrial revolution. But there's so many social inequalities around the world, that around the uh, nations, that they're literally just falling apart. 
And they were basically like time bombs about to explode at any moment. And in France, that time bomb actually exploded. And the French Revolution came and hit and cost tens of thousands of lives. But yet, in exactly the same time, in exactly the same circumstances, the British Isles experienced something radically different. Over time, historians have kind of analyzed and investigated, but they've come to this conclusion that what happened instead wasn't this revolution, but was this thing they call the Great Awakening. You see, the Great Awakening, or what you and I would call revival, was when about a fifth of the entire population of the British Isles came to know Jesus. And because of that, because of that radical change, because of that radical impact, it had a huge impact on the nation itself. There was incredible social healing. The slave trade was abolished. Uh, child welfare uh, was incre- increased dramatically. The rich and the poor alike, their lives were mo- like incredibly changed. You know, the rich suddenly became, they had a heart for generosity and justice, whereas the poor, that were admittedly mostly drunken at this time, started to increase their idea of self-worth. They started to see themselves differently. They started to love themselves. And they started to gain this kind of self-control over their life. That, for me, is what Christianity is about. It's an undisputed fact that when that happened, when that great awakening hit, it didn't just um, avoid a bloody revolution that took place in France, but it also transformed this great nation. It's also an undisputed fact that about 2,000 years ago, a group of peasants and slaves that believed in this Lord Jesus Christ who died, who was God, came to earth, who died on the cross, who rose three days later, who ascended to the right hand of the Father. People who put their trust in that, people with no political pull, no cultural attractiveness, no financial basis, no educational power, It was those people, those outcasts, those poor, those nobody that transformed not just the little community around them, but the entire Roman Empire. And so there are 300 years later, they say, they guesstimate about 10% of the Roman Empire population were Christians. That's over 6 million people. You know, one person, one historian commentates, I think actually it was someone at the time, He says, it was at that time that we had to admit, we have to admit that we are a Christian society. The reason why they say that is because for all intents and purposes, everything was falling apart around them. And it was only the Christians that were holding everything together by the way that they loved the poor, that they cared for those who had nothing, that they drew everything out of people into life. That's what the church could and should look like. That's the power that's within us. More people will say that Christianity is just a crutch, a hope, a, a little thing to get you through, a bit of comfort to get you through something. Maybe other people have a, lo- a bit more negative approach in it. I was talking to someone after the service who was basically saying, well, to be honest, it just feels a bit kind of a guilt-tripping, you know, kind of religion, as it were, institution. And as you look around, you know, you can't really argue with what they're saying. So it leads to this question. Do we really understand what we hold when we talk about Jesus who died and rose from the dead and who ascended to the right hand of the Father? Do we understand the power that is available to us and within us? 
Do we understand the potential? And can we reach that potential today? Does that, is that what our church looks like? Or is that what our church could be like and should be like and has the potential to be like? To believe that is something incredibly powerful and dramatically different from just doing Christianity. And so this series that I'm starting today, and I'll give you a bit of an introduction, a kind of a position I want to talk about Jesus. And then next week, Mark is going to talk about the Holy Spirit, the empower, the encourager. And then finally, we've got Louis back up, which I'm very excited about. He preached at Blinder last time. I'm very, um, you know, very excited about him coming up. He's going, to, he's going to finish us off in three weeks' time, or two weeks' time, talking about the, um, the acts of the church. What could be real? What could be true for us? So let me, uh, let me open up the book of Acts. Let me start here. So um, Acts 1, if you've got it in your Bible, which well, it should be in your Bible. I don't think it's been taken out of anyone's Bible. If you've got the wrong Bible, if Acts is not in there, okay? Um, Acts 1, it says this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So the author of this book is a guy called Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke. And so when he's talking about his former book, he's talking about that gospel, saying that was all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he goes on. And he says, and, and now he's talking, uh, sorry, then he talks about what that was, what he began to do and teach, and he talks about the fact that he suffered, Jesus Christ suffered. And then he also gave many convincing proofs. Let me just talk to those two before we, we go forward. So first of all, he, um, he suffered. You know, just eight letters. But if you open that door, it could lead to the incredible depths of God's love for us. You see, deep down, many of us would agree that that we're not all we could be. We're not all we should be individually. And we make mistakes on one level, but we also do things wrong on another level. We know that left to our own devices, we, we can be quite destructive, both in our own lives and in other people's lives. And I don't know about you, but I've hurt a lot of people in my life that I regret and wish I hadn't. Now, the thing is, is every time we do that, we put a barrier, not just between us and someone else, but also between us and God. And that barrier and that penalty, that price needs to be dealt with. You couldn't go into a courtroom and be convicted and, and told you're guilty of a crime and then turn around and say, but, oh, you know what, you're so right. I'm so sorry I did that. You know, I'm going to try my hardest to be better going forward. The judge isn't going to turn around and say, oh, well, that's fantastic. You know, okay, well, I'll let you off this time. Of course not. He's going to say, that, that is great, that's wonderful, stay on that path. But you have to face the consequences of your actions. And if that's how a judge, and that's how we run this society, then why would we expect God to run the universe any differently? You see, the thing that was held against us, against us the, the punishment, the penalty that we deserved, was death and, and destruction. It says the wages of sin is death. Justice needs to happen. But you see, this is the amazing thing. This is where Jesus steps in. 
And he gets in between you and us, and he gets in between destruction that we so deserve and says, no, I want to stand in the way. And he speaks to that death and that destruction and says, you will not take those who belong to me. But that death and destruction has to fall on somebody, on something. So Jesus stands there and takes every ounce of the punishment that we deserve. Every single bit. And as a result, he dies. But you see the remarkable thing is that, well, let me, so let me say this. Actually, if you, read the, um, if you read the scriptures and you look at the moment that Jesus died, there was this great earthquake. And when the earthquake hit, the temple was shaken, and inside the temple there was this veil that kind of kept you from going into the most holy place. And that veil was torn. It was a symbolism of the fact that you and I, now because of what Jesus did, we have that veil torn. There's no more barrier. There's, no more, there's nothing that holds us back from God. We can then come into the presence of God. We can come home. But more so, God can come into our lives and live with us. It's this incredible, powerful thing. But I've read for the very first time, and I've read it a, couple of, you know, a few times, and it never really stood out to me. But when Jesus rose from the dead, when the angel came to the tomb and rolled that stone away, there was a second earthquake. You see, that second earthquake, just like the first, was marking this momentous event that couldn't be contained in just a story, but was so radical that it transformed and impacted the very world around it. And that event, that Jesus rising from the dead, wasn't just that Jesus was now obstructing death and destruction, but was he took it by the very grass and dealt with it himself. He destroyed death. That means you and I can walk through this world with utter confidence that Jesus has not just taken the punishment, but has destroyed death itself, has set us free. That's what he means by he suffered. And then it goes on to talk about many convinced proofs. You know, for many of us, we would go, well, do you know, if I could just see a miracle, if God would just reveal himself to me, I would believe, absolutely. I put all my trust in there, I'd utterly believe, for sure, Right? Well, the funny thing is, is that if you read Matthew 28, 17, so all, Jesus just died, and then all his disciples are seeing him in the, person, in the flesh. They can see the holes in his hands. They can see the scars that he bore. And they worshipped him. And then it has this funny little thing that at the end of it. It says, but, but some of them doubted. I mean, they could see him in person. They could see a miracle. They could see him, Jesus Christ, God himself. But they still doubted. That's actually quite comforting for us. Because we all experience doubts. But you know, the good thing about doubts, and the reason why Jesus acknowledges those doubts and meets them with proofs, is that good doubts lead to good questions. And when you get those good questions and you bring them before God or you bring them before the church, go to a connect group, go to an alpha course, whatever you do, then you can get informed answers. So that with those informed answers, you can make an informed decision as to whether or not to commit. You know, for example, you know, did you know for 100% sure that the person you're sitting next to, if you're married, you knew 100% sure that you, that was the person you should marry? And obviously, if you're sitting next to them, the answer is yes, right? <laughs> Looking at couples. <laughs> the truth is, and I can say this because Tara's not in the room, um, <laughs> no. The truth is, you don't know 100% sure. You're fairly sure. I mean, you wouldn't get to that point if you weren't fairly sure. But you know you're not perfect, and you know things can happen. But it's not knowing 100% sure. It's not being given all the answers, given all the evidence. The thing that makes it real is the commitment. 
If you've ever hired someone for a job, are you 100% sure that they are the right person for the job? Probably not. But it's the moment you hire them, the moment they start doing the job is the moment you go, okay, yes, they were the right person. And it's the same with Jesus. We can look at all the information. We can look at all the proof about Jesus. We can see all the evidence of which God offers plenty. You know, it actually says that the reason why the, one of the reasons why the church thrived so ma- much in those early days was because of the great miracles and supernatural events that were taking place when people prayed for one another. Because they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have arguments. They didn't have all these ideas and philosophies that they could pin up against one another. They just said, I, I don't know. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. Can I show you? Can I demonstrate to you? Can I pray for you? And as they do that, God always did stuff. Whether it was a complete healing or whether it was just revealing his presence. And then with that, they had answers. They had ideas and they could make a decision. And that's what it means, many convincing proofs. It goes on. It goes on from verse 4. Let me read this. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know when, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking at the sky? That same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. This is about the ascension. You know, let me just say this. We, we celebrate uh, Christmas, the birth of Christ. We celebrate Easter, uh, the death and the resurrection. To be honest, I'm always looking for more celebrations anyway. I think it's a great thing we should do as Christians and as a church. We should celebrate everything. But this is one thing we should definitely celebrate is the ascension. A great example of why this is important and how this has impact is when we look at Acts 6 and 7, and you see this story about a guy called Stephen. See, Stephen was this, this uh, I guess, a leader in the church. He was involved in a ministry, I think it was a compassion ministry or whatever it was. But he was starting to get known by the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, that actually he was speaking what they call heresy, what they thought was wrong according to their scriptures. And so they bring him before him to interrogate him and possibly and ultimately stone him for his heresy. And as he speaks, as he details not just their beliefs, the Jewish idea, but actually then talks about Jesus, there's this incredible thing that happens. As he's being stoned, as he's being martyred, there's this beautiful, beautiful thing about him that just has this wonderful peace about him. This incredible fearlessness. I mean, if, at the moment that he's dying is the moment that he even prays for those who are stoning him. I mean, that is just incredible resolve. There is something more than just a very nice guy who believes that God loves people going on here. This is someone who has been radically impacted, radically changed, who has been grasped to the core of what this is about. You see, like, his disciples, like, um, like the disciples, many see the ascension 
as a time when Jesus left the earth. He ascended into heaven. But you see, the thing is, is that Stephen sees, as we'll read, that he doesn't just see Jesus leave the earth. He sees where Jesus is going, to the right hand of the Father. Let me read this. Uh, Acts 7 onwards. Uh, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Nice euphemism. You see, the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the throne of God, isn't just a a kind of a picture of which helps us understand where Jesus has gone. No, the right hand of the throne is a place of authority. It's a place of power. It's basically the prime minister position. You see, whoever stands in that position, whoever's at the right hand of of, of the king, has incredible power in the kingdom to do whatever needs to be done. More so, they have favor. Whatever they ask for will be completed, will be done for them. So Jesus wasn't just leaving us in order to send the Holy Spirit, which Mark will unpack, I'm sure, next week in in great uh, wonder and detail. But actually, Jesus was going to a place of power, a place of authority. You see, the thing why this impacts us is that they kind of hint in the very first verse of Acts, where it says that his former book was about all that Jesus began to teach and do. So the implication is that the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of our history is about not what Jesus began to do, but what Jesus is continuing to do. In other words, that you and I, in this world, at this time, we don't just stand here going, well, we had a great Jesus, and he died a death, and he rose from the dead, and then he left us. We have a Jesus that is constantly at work, is an incredible power, an incredible position. It's almost like you're being exiled from a place. You're being sent off from somewhere, saying, we don't want you here anymore, only to find the place you've been sent is the place where your best friend is in charge. It's kind of like the story of Joseph in, in Genesis, where it talks about him you know, being um, just want, hated by his brothers at the time. And so they send him off to die, but he doesn't quite die. He ends up in slavery, and then he disappears. For, for all they know, they think he's gone and dead, and they don't care. But there comes a day when famine hits the nation, when a struggle comes, when trouble times hit, And they have to go to Egypt, and they ask the guy in power, they say, please, could you give us food? Please, could you help us? And over time, they suddenly realize that they're not just asking anybody for help. They're not just asking anybody for provision. They realize they're asking their brother, the one who loves them, the one who cares for them. You see, you and I, we don't look to a God and say, God, I I really hope you can help me in this. See, we have a God who loves us to our core, who died a death for us, who rose from the dead so he could be with us and be in charge. He rose to heaven not so he could get away and go to a nice, comfortable place, but so he could take ultimate authority over this earth. So that you and I, when we're in these situations, whether they are going well or not, whether they are, are, you know, you can see an outcome or you cannot see an outcome, whatever struggle, whatever ease you're in, You can know one thing is for certain, and that is that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And that's why Stephen was able, with utmost confidence, to go, I don't care what you think and what you're going to do to me, because I know that my Jesus is in charge. So let me tell you the truth. More so, my heart breaks for you, because you do not yet realize this. So let me tell you, and let me forgive you, so that Christ may forgive you too. 
We have a God who's constantly in charge. You know, one of the things that the early Christians were known for was this wonderful ability to die well. Nothing fazed them. When a plague hit the entire uh, region, and most people ran for the hills, it was Christians that hung back to take care of those who were dying and those who were diseased. And it wasn't easy, and it wasn't like a nice thing to do because they were dying themselves. They caught the disease and died. But they also saw a lot of people come through. And those people that they cared for, those people that they saw healed, whether miraculously or just out of love and and care, most of those people ended up giving their lives to Jesus because they saw something in these people that was real. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just, oh, God loves you. These were a people who walked with utmost confidence, with complete sincerity, with complete faith that their Jesus wasn't just died for their sins. He wasn't just risen and conquered death, but was in a place of power, a power that will never finish, a reign that will never end. My heart is that we as a church would have that incredible confidence that incredible certainty. In some ways, I'm just telling you the information now. And hopefully over the next couple of weeks, that will start to bear fruit and you'll get an idea of that. But as I said at the beginning of the service, what I want to do is demonstrate God's love once again. So would you guys mind standing once again? And we're just going to pray once again for the sick. So if again, just as we did at the beginning, if you're struggling with some physical pain, if you've got some kind of limitation of movement, then would you just raise a hand where you stand? Just raise it high so people can see. If you found a, a, a small healing in the beard, but actually you know God's going to do some more, just raise your hand. Okay, and again, if you see a hand near you, would you just go over and lay a hand on their shoulder? Lay a hand on their shoulder. You're going to have to move across the room and do this. Why would you not want to pray for someone and see them healed? Just lay a hand on their shoulder. Say, come Holy Spirit. We have a Jesus who died for us. That's how much he valued our lives. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares, that he was willing to lay his life down for us. We have a Jesus that was not defeated by death, but conquered death itself, destroyed the very essence of death, that we are no longer subject to that. We may experience a temporary pain in this life, but it is not the end. It will not be the end and will never be the end. But that very same Jesus who loves us, who conquered death, who has all power in heaven and earth, and now ascended to the right hand of the throne, a place of authority, a place of power, a place of favor. And it's in that very place that he is able to be at work to intercede for our healing. You see, at the beginning of the book of Acts, it says what Jesus began to do. Through you and I this day, that Jesus is continuing to do his work. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. And so we say... We don't ask, we say to that body, be healed in the name of Jesus. Let me just widen it. If you are feeling 
kept back, if you're feeling constrained, if you just know there's a thing, maybe even a darkness you can perceive, and I just say, be set free in the name of Jesus. Increase your presence, Lord God. Once again, if you are being prayed for and you can feel a, a significant improvement or healing, would you just would you just raise your hand so I can see? Tell me what what was the problem? Where if you were at ten at the beginning, where are you now? I have a chest pain. Chest pain? Yeah, because coughing. I've been coughing for the last few weeks. Okay. Yep. Much better. If you can give it a number. A four. Fantastic. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Would you just continue praying for him? Wonderful. Anyone else? Is there a hand over there? Sorry, the light. Yep. Wonderful. So just remind me what the problem was. It was inflamed. Three discs in your lumbar region. One's pressing against the nerve. And so throughout this prayer this morning and prayer this, evening, this afternoon, you've been completely healed. Yes. Wonderful. Praise God. Just a freedom from worry and anxiety that was ultimately spiritual warfare. Praise God. Give him a round of applause. Complete healing. <laughs> One more. Any other hands? Yes, Colin. Arthritic right knee. Starting in a 10, what number would you give it? A four. Amazing. So 60% healing. Continue praying for him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. I'm good with the band. Come back up, please. We, well, I was about to say we serve an amazing God, but before that, before we even got to that place, we have a God who loves us. We love him because he first loved us. He demonstrated that on the cross. He demonstrated that in the resurrection. He will continue to demonstrate that from the right hand of the throne. And this is just a taste. So much is possible for us as a church. I'm going to pray, but um, because of the time, if you've got kids, would you mind going to collect them before we come back? And afterwards, I'll read some words of knowledge and we'll pray for you. But if you've got kids, go and relieve those wonderful kids' workers. Let me just pray. Father, I want to say thank you. I mean, thank you doesn't feel like enough. You are a, a wonderful, miraculous working God. But it's not about what you do. It's not about you know, how you bless us and all this other stuff. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun. But Lord, we, want, we know one thing for sure, that you love us unconditionally and that you are constantly at work in this world and you will be at work until the day you return. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you call us son and daughter, brother and sister. And we thank you that we are welcomed home. In your name, Jesus, we thank you and we pray. Amen.